Well, we're three weeks away from our 50th anniversary, and a big day for us. We're all anticipating it. You know about it. I don't need to take time telling you about it. But today, I'm going to do something very, very different. We've been having testimonies. The last two Sunday nights, we've had nothing but testimonies. We've had a testimony meeting. One night, we had several of our members, leaders in our church, and we called them impact testimonies, referring to the impact the church and the ministry here has had upon their lives. And boy, I could tell you really enjoyed that. And then last Sunday night, we had staff members give testimonies <clears throat> of the church. So far, I haven't given any testimonies or told you any stories, but I've had people somewhere back a month or two ago, people were saying, we'd like to hear some of the things that have happened to the church through the years. It was instrumental. It was things that we'll never forget, but we weren't here during those days. So today, I'm going to give you one of my stories and take about five minutes. Now, this is not the message, so don't get your purse and get ready to leave when I get... This is, this is the warm-up, okay? This is the warm-up act. And I'm going to tell you a, a story that happened here that I will never forget, and most of the people who were involved won't. In October of 1981, a neighbor called me. And uh, at the time, I lived south of town, and one of the people in the neighborhood called and said, um, do you know what's happening downtown at such and such a restaurant? And I said, no, I, I, I don't. And they said, well, a male strip show from Charlotte has come here. They've been coming here about once a month, and they perform. They do their routine down here. I was shocked because, honestly, it was one of the nicest restaurants in the area, and I thought, surely they wouldn't be doing that kind of thing, but they were. And uh, I found out about it. Well, the woman brought me the pictures she had talked about. She said, I'm going to bring you the pictures. They were taken by a person who was in the show. I still have the pictures, and that's 1981, so however long that is. So uh, I opened up the envelope. I'm not going to do that today. And there were pictures of these male dancers who had come from, uh, from Charlotte. And they were having a male strip show. I didn't know, about know anybody wanted to see men, but I guess they do. So um, the routine was this male would come out, and he would strip off all of his clothes, except the, I don't even want to describe it, the least that you can wear under the law. And then um, it was a wild scene. A large crowd of women, they were coming up, sticking money in his little string, and they were uh, kissing him, and there was a lot of alcohol, and it was a wild, profane, terrible, terrible, indecent scene. And uh, then in the routine, a man came out dressed as the police chief. It wasn't the police chief. He was one of the dancers. He would then take off his clothes uh, at the demand of the ladies, women, people, and then uh, he peeled off his clothes, and he joined the party. And then the last guy coming out was dressed like a preacher. And so he would come out, and he would reprimand them for their behavior, and then he stripped off his clothes. And so, boy, you had every kind of defiance of authority, every kind of uh, evil you could almost think about. 
And I found out that I was not the only pe person concerned about it. There was another preacher in town named Jerry Aiken. And he had already been down there. Where is Jerry Aiken? Jerry Aiken? He's not here today. Oh, well, he was there. He went down before me, and he had carried on sort of a protest there. Well, in a few weeks, they announced they were going to have another show. And so I went to the city officials with my little packet of pictures, and I showed them the pictures. And uh, I went to the mayor. He wasn't willing to do anything. I went to the police chief. He wouldn't do anything. I went to city council members. They told me there wasn't anything indecent according to the law the Supreme Court had ruled, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I had a daily 15-minute radio program every day at noon. And I preached on Christians being the salt and the light in society. I preached on our responsibility to hold back moral decay. I told the audience that what was happening, uh, and I invited them to join me. We were going to go and uh, stand on the sidewalk, stay off of the man's property. We were going to protest what they were doing down there. And so we did. People gathered at the church. About 200 of our members came out. Uh, Wayne Lewis was on our staff at that time, and I was actually not even going to be there. I was preaching out of town and couldn't get out of my preaching engagement, but Wayne met the people, organized them. We got six or eight bus loads of people, and so we went down there where the restaurant was. We stood on the, in fact, we didn't just stand in front of it. We circled the whole cotton-picking thing, you know, and uh, our people were very kind. They were very Christ-honoring. But uh, we protested what was happening, the indecency of that in our city. Well, the next day, the newspaper came out, and we made the front page headlines, as you might think. And uh, the owner was interviewed, and uh, that article appeared in the paper. He said that Bill Monroe and his Jonestown group. <laughs> so Jonestown had just occurred a couple of years before that. Bill Monroe and his Jonestown group, that's what he thought of us, I guess, they were down here protesting. Here's what the owner said in this interview. He said, um, our show doesn't contribute to moral decay. Our shows are high-quality entertainment. Good, clean fun for ladies to have a night out. And then they interviewed the top stripper there, and he said, we're not a skin show. We have a high-class show. There was one letter came in support of us. I'd never met the man but it was dated uh, November the 7th, 1981. It was from Dr. Al Harley, M.D. And Al Harley wrote and thanked us for what we were doing in the community. And um, so we kept on trying. The city still wouldn't really do anything. And uh, I thought, how in the world are we going to get their attention? And so... Uh, Larry Prosser, I don't know if Larry's here today or not, but Larry and I came up with an idea, and we said, we got to get the city on record, because it's obviously wide open that anybody can do anything they want here, but virtually. So we went down to where they sell business licenses, and uh, I walked in and told the lady, I'm opening a new business here in town, and the address is so-and-so, and we need a business license. So she wrote it out. She said, what's the name of your business? I said, it's the Shangri-La Exotic Dance and Burlesque Showplace. 
I made up the worst name I could possibly. Prosser and I worked for an hour on that name. And all she said was, that'll be $40. (laughs) And on the way out the door, I told her, well, we'll sell our city's decency for $40. I just found out the price on it. And uh, we'd made our point. Florence didn't have any real laws against anything like that, no community standards. Well, I guess I embarrassed the city. A few days later, I got a letter from the city council, and they had revoked my license. (laughs) But I'm very proud of that. I'm the only Baptist preacher in the history of the United States that has a license to run a strip show. Well, the TV 15 had just signed on the air, and TV 15 wanted me to come on the live local news. Can you believe that? Back when they had it at 6 o'clock, and uh, they said, we want you to debate the president of the local ACLU. He's going to argue that this is okay, and you're going to argue against it, right? And I said, oh, yeah. So I put my pictures in my pocket. I didn't tell anybody I had them, and I'm sitting on the news desk with the with the president of the ACLU locally, who, by the way, was also a preacher. And um, he said, well, the show's okay. It meets the standards of the Supreme Court's decency test. I said, it does not, and I'll prove it. In fact, I have pictures of it. And I reached in to pull out my pictures, and the director came running out of the the studio, cut, 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 cut. (laughs) And the whole thing went black. They shut the news down that night because they were afraid they were going to get sued because they thought I was going to show those pictures, which proves those pictures probably, you know, proves that show wasn't high-quality entertainment if you can't show it on the news. And at any rate, um, we came back on and debated a few minutes. Long story short, the show never returned. A year later, Another show came and had one performance on Evans Street, but you know what? By then, the church people were stirred up. Forty or fifty churches put an ad in the Florence Morning News, a full page, and said, we don't want that stuff in our city, and guess what? We don't have it anymore. And uh, what did we learn from that as a church? Well, we learned that we're to be the salt and we're to be the light, and that a few people, if they really want to take a moral position, God just might honor them and bless them, and that we are to be the conscience of the community. And we made a lot of enemies. A lot of people talked about us in a bad way. Some of them have since gotten saved. And, uh, you know, it's amazing when the Holy Spirit gets in you, your view of what's proper changes, doesn't it? And so, uh, I was so proud of our church. I, I, of course, obviously had to lead it, but boy, I did it with 100% support of this church, and I've always been so grateful for that. And uh, we believe today that we're still the salt and the light. We do everything we can to enhance the, um, the standards of our community toward morality and toward righteousness. Well, that's the end of my story. Okay, so in the book of Haggai today, if you will... There's another one of those Baptist temple stories that we're trying to tell this month. The book of Haggai, chapter 1 and verse 1. Will you stand with me, please? Haggai's three books, I think, from the end of the Old Testament. And 
chapter 1 and verse 1 as we read God's Word together. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. But then the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet came, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? Seal there has the idea of a fine, fine home. Is it time for you to dwell in your fine home and this house lie waste, referring to the temple? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much, and you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is waste, and you run every man into his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, the nations of the Persian Empire were in turmoil when this was written. New nations were arising. Wars were spreading across the Middle East. Natural disasters were occurring. God was shaking the nations. In fact, that is one of the great phrases that we learn from the book of Haggai. Well, you look in chapter 2, and in verse number 6, God said, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And in verse 7, he said, I will shake all nations. And in verse 21, he says it again, I'm shaking the nations. And so this was a time of the shaking of the nations. We know exactly when Haggai lived. He lived about 520 years before Christ because it dates it by the reign of Darius in chapter 1 and verse 1. And so it was a time of cultural and political turbulence. It was a time when God said, I'm shaking the nations of the earth. God is again shaking the nations, if you'll think about it. Think of what is happening today in Syria. Think of what is happening in Turkey and Iran and Saudi Arabia, where we sent more troops this week. Think of what has happened in Venezuela, the most second to the United States, the most prosperous country in the Western Hemisphere, and now people are eating out of garbage dumps since they uh, became socialist about 15, 20 years ago. Think of what you've seen on the news this week about Hong Kong and the riots there with thousands, tens of thousands of people. Think of what is happening in Britain where they're trying to Brexit to get out of the European common market and they're finding great controversy and problems in doing so. And so there's 
a shaking going on in Britain. And then you think of America, and I need not dwell on how God is shaking our nation. Massive, massive social and cultural and political changes are happening. And they're not only happening in America, but ladies and gentlemen, they're happening worldwide as well. We're seeing a, a sea change, if you will, occurring across the entire globe today. And what is tragic is at the time that the church is most needed, at the time when our message needs to be the clearest, when the prophet's message needs, needs to be the sharpest and the prophets the most fearless, it seems like the church, the people of God, are withdrawing, that they are confused about what should we do, what is right, what is wrong, that there's a moral ambiguity, a moral fog that's settled across the world where people cannot see things as right and wrong and black and white, but they see everything in various hues of gray. And as I've said to you before, I really believe if things don't change in our country that we're on the path to the judgment of Almighty God. I don't know if you heard the news this week. I hope you do follow it. Boy, if you're not an informed Christian, you can't be of great value to the kingdom, I'll tell you. You need to know what's happening. One of the candidates for president of the United States was asked on a program Thursday night, would you take the church's tax exemption if they were to oppose same-sex marriage? And without hesitation, he said, absolutely, yes, I would. I've never heard anybody come out that clearly and say it, but we knew that was coming, didn't we? Uh, you see the clouds, you know there's going to be a rain, and you've been seeing clouds now along that horizon for the last uh, 20 years or so. So it was like, we live in times very similar to the times of Haggai, when great social, economic, cultural, political change is occurring, not just in our part of the world, but around the whole globe, as I've tried to illustrate to you. And so Haggai makes a charge against the people of Israel. The prophet brings them a message. Look in verse 5, and you'll see, you'll see his message in very sharp uh, uh, hues there. It's a very simple message. Consider your ways, O Israel, verse 5. And then he says again in verse 7, Israel, consider your ways. That was his message. Let me tell you a little bit of his background. The background here is that 50,000 Jews had left Persia or Babylon, and they had gone back to their homeland of Jerusalem. They were, had returned home. And when they got home, they immediately began to rebuild the temple. Solomon's temple had, or uh, uh, yes, Solomon's temple had been completely destroyed. It had been razed. It had been burned. It was just a pile of rubble. When the Babylonians came and overthrew Israel, 70 years prior to this. And so they went back, 50,000 of them, to that pile of rubble described in the book of Ezra and described in the book of Nehemiah, and they began to rebuild the temple. They cleaned away the rubbish, and they began to work 
to rebuild God's house there. It was so important to them because, you see, the temple was not just a place of worship, though it was that, but the temple was also the very center of Jewish life. Their lives revolved around the temple. Their lives revolved around the church, if you, if you put it in modern terms. And so they completed the foundation in just a few weeks or months of time but then, strangely, they just stopped the work. They shut it down. Nothing happened on that temple site for 16 years, 16 long years. The sound of a hammer was not heard. A nail was not driven. A rock was not put in place. 16 years, the foundation sat there with the weeds growing up through it until finally God sends a man. His name is Haggai. We know almost nothing about Haggai. I studied all the background I could. You find nothing about him because nothing is really known about him in modern times. Normally, when it lists the name of a Jewish man or an official, a prophet or a priest, it gives the history of them. It gives a, a sort of a, a biography. It gives a genealogy, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. You don't find that with Haggai. It doesn't mention who his dad was. Never mentions his father or any of his relatives or even his tribe. He's mentioned twice in the book of Ezra, but uh, nothing else is known about him except that God called him and God sent him. And what kind of a man is Haggai? He is a man on fire. He is a man who is driven Haggai is a man who has one goal in his life, and that is to rebuild that temple, to get that project, that construction project that has been lying there dormant for 16 years, to get it going again and to rebuild that temple to the glory of God. Why had they stopped? Why did the temple site sit there for 16 years? Well, the message today is that subject. It's about priorities. And in their case, it was misplaced priorities. Look in verse number nine, or four, rather. Is it time for you, Israel, to dwell in your fine or sealed houses, and this house, the house of God, lie waste? You, you built the foundation. You haven't done anything since in 16 years. And then you go down to verse number 9, if you will, there, in the second part of verse 9. Because my house is waste, and you run every man to your own house. You're content to let my house lie waste, abandoned, so you can go to your own house and take care of your personal affairs. There's nothing wrong with having a nice home. But the problem was they had focused exclusively and solely on their own homes, on their own personal affairs. And because they had, the house of God had lain desolate for all of these years. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, the real battle for the Christian life today still is, and it is for you, and it is for me. The real battle for the Christian life is about priorities. 
Maybe if I only had one message to preach again in my life, and I thought, this is it. What will I say to the people who are my hearers? It might be that I would preach on priorities. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6 and 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God? What is there so hard about first we don't understand? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, the work of God, the house of God, the church of God, the cause of Christ. And you don't have to give up the sealed house. It's not like it's a a, a binary choice of A versus B. You get all one and none of the other or vice versa. It's not that at all. It's a choice that if you'll put God first, all these other things will be added unto you. Didn't he say that? Why is that so hard? Why can't we believe that in American Christianity today? They came to Jesus and they said to him, Master, what is the first and most important commandment in the law? It was a priority. What do you say the priority is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not hard to understand. Pretty simple, in fact. He didn't say you can't have a nice home. He didn't say you can't drive a nice car. He didn't say you can't work and have a retirement program or whatever it is you want in life. But he said, put me first. And the temple had lain neglected and desolate for 16 years while everybody had taken care of their own business and their own personal affairs. A few years ago, there was an ad in a farm magazine out in one of the western states. Guy ran him a little classified ad, a bachelor. A farmer with 160 irrigated acres wants a marriage-minded woman with a tractor. When replying, please include a picture of the tractor. <laughs> Misplaced priorities. Wouldn't you think? I would think even the, the lady that was most wanting to get married in the whole world would look at that, please include that picture of the tractor and say, you know, I might ought to hold off on him. I don't know that I'll be first in his life. The charge, consider your ways. Why do you leave the house of God abandoned and desolate? The message of Haggai. And what's the cost to them? Because, you see, disobedience always has a cost. What's the cost of misplaced priorities? It's that we lose the blessing of the Lord. You see, there's that law of sowing and reaping, and we talk a lot about sowers here now, don't we? And there's this law of sowing and reaping, and if you look here in verse 6 with me, you'll see it playing out again. Verse number 6, you have sown a lot of seed but you're bringing in very little. You eat, but it's not enough. You're not satisfied. You drink, but you're not filled. You buy nice clothes, but you're not warm. 
Look at the end of verse 6. And you earn wages and put it in a bag, and it's like the bag has holes in it. What a picture. You work, and you think I'm going to prosper, and I'm going to get ahead, and you put it in a bag, and you open the bag, and it's gone. Things just don't work out for you. And why is that? It's because you're disobedient, he said. Look in verse number 9, what God said. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And you brought it home, and God said, I just blew it away. I know people that should be doing well, but they can never prosper in life because they don't have the blessing of the Lord upon their life. Do you have the blessing of the Lord upon your life, Christian? I'm talking to Christians now. You see, I can be saved. I can be forgiven of my sins. I can have the Holy Spirit living within me. But if I live a life of disobedience, I can't expect the blessing of the Lord upon my life. I just can't expect it. And I could give you multiple illustrations I don't even have time for. What happened to it? What happened to their prosperity? Well, look down in verse 10. God says, therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. Your crops don't flourish. I've sent a drought. Verse 11, I call for a drought upon the land, on the mountains, on your corn, on your new wine, upon your oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon your men, and upon your cattle, and upon all the labor of your hands. There's a drought. More than just a lack of water, a drought of the blessings of Almighty God. God even sent natural disasters here to take away their prosperity because they had abandoned the work of God, the house of God. You know, disobedience has a pretty high price tag, doesn't it? The blessing of God, what a price. Who would, I mean, wouldn't you rather have the blessing of God than just about anything you could think of today? Boy, I sure would. To know that I have his blessing, his hand, his presence, his approval upon my life. If I wrote a check for every penny I'd ever have, it would not be worth it compared to knowing that God has his hand upon your life. I looked upon a farm one day that once I used to own. The barn had fallen to the ground, and the fields were overgrown. The house in which my children grew, where we had lived for years, I turned to see it broken down, and I brushed aside the tears. I looked upon my soul one day, hear me, I looked upon my soul one day, consider your ways. I looked upon my soul one day to find it too had grown with thorns and nettles everywhere. The seeds neglect had sown. Years had passed while I had cared for things of lesser worth. The things of heaven I let go while minding things of earth. I want to ask you a question. Consider your ways. 
Have we, have you, have I allowed less important responsibilities of life, personal affairs, to replace the most important thing, the priority of God and His church and His service and His righteousness? Have I allowed the Lord to take a back seat to other things going on in my life, personal pursuits? There's an old hymn we sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel that, don't you? Not a week goes by, I don't feel that feeling of being, you know, I I chaff at the the disciplines that are required to really live a godly life, to be honest. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. My natural inclination is to put self first and other things second and the Lord somewhere down the line there. Well, notice what Haggai said. He said, consider your ways. He said, disobedience has robbed you of the blessing of God. And thirdly, he said, he gave them a command. He said, rebuild the temple. Just go, re- just start in where you left off. And I can say that to you today. Have you wandered away from the Lord? Am I speaking to somebody and your heart's gotten cold and you're a prodigal son or daughter and you're far away from God today? Well, don't despair. Here's what you do. You just go back to where you left the foundation and you start. And in chapter 1 and verse number 8, go up to the mountain. This is simple enough. Point one, go up to the mountain. Number two, bring the wood. Number three, build the house, and I'll take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, said the Lord. Just about as simple as it could be said, isn't it? Just go and do what you should have been doing all along. Don't regret all the years, and don't, don't get into the uh, despair and the depression and so on. Just begin to do what God commanded you to do in your life initially before you wandered away from it. You know why the temple was so important in Jewish life? It was the center of life, as I've already stated. Now, let me tell you, the temple was the place of God's presence. God dwelled in that temple. Above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubims was the Shekinah glory cloud. It was the very essence, the presence of Almighty God. They saw Him come down in the cloud and rest in that holy of holies where only the priest could go and only on one time a year. It was the place of God's actual presence in that ancient Jewish temple. But secondly, it was a place of praise. And the whole nation would gather there, a small nation, and God was honored. They carried banners with His names upon it that honored Him. They sung songs of praise. They prayed. They read the Scriptures. Copies of the Scriptures were contained there in in highly secure vaults that they treasured them more than almost anything else in national life. It was a place of prayer. The temple was the place of prayer. Didn't Jesus say when He went into the temple and they were desecrating it, my Father's house shall be called what? A house of prayer, didn't He? The temple was a place of proclamation where the priests read the Word of God. They taught the Word of God. They preached from the Word of God. They honored and held up the Word of God. 
It was a place of fellowship where the people gathered and they saw their loved ones and their, and their friends. It was a place where people loved you and where you loved other people. The temple was a place of unity. Two things unify a nation more than anything else. One, a common language. I wish our nation would remember that. The more language is being spoken, the more divided the culture will be. And the second thing that unifies a nation is common belief, common religion, common submission to a divine being. Again, I wish our nation would learn that. And this was the most important project going on in the nation, the building of that temple. Now, everything I said about that temple, we can apply to our church here. It's a place of God's presence. When you walk in the door of the Florence Baptist Temple, if things are right and like they ought to be, there's a sense that God is here. You know, it's one of the most, that is one of the most precious things in the world to me as a pastor is that I have people come and tell me, I have had visitors tell me, I could sense the presence of God when I walked on the parking lot. And when you walk in the door, that's why it's so, friend, it's so important that we be friendly and warm and loving to everybody who walks in these doors, everybody. Short and tall and rich and poor and black and white and pretty and ugly, clean and dirty, everybody. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the presence of God comes when his people are obedient and they love one another. The church is a place of praise as it was them where we honor the Lord and sing his praise and, and, and preach his word. It's a place of prayer. You have in your bulletin there something to pray for every day this week, something to thank the Lord for and something to pray about, a ministry of the church. It's a place of proclamation as I'm preaching God's Word right now. It's a place of fellowship where we, we learn to love and grow in fellowship with one another. It's a place of unity where we're of one mind and one heart together for the work of God. And everything I've said about the temple, you can apply to the church. And listen to me, everything I've said about the church, you can apply to your own life. You should apply it to your own life. Because you see, I'm a temple. You are not your own. You're bought with the blood of Christ. And you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives within you. My body has the presence of God. My body is a place of proclamation. My body is a place of praise. My body is a place of fellowship. My body is a place of prayer. Everything you can say about that temple, you can say about this church, and everything you can say about the church, you can say about an individual Christian. And the people obeyed. Look how the people responded in verse number 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, that's the governor, and the spirit of Joshua, the priest. And so you have government and religion there. And the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And they built that temple. 
And the Lord was so pleased. Look what he said in verse number 13. He said, Haggai, you go tell them that I am with them when they obey. When they are willing to follow me, I will be with them. You see, when they obeyed, the blessing of the Lord came back upon their life. There's a great principle there. Maybe you'd like to write it in your Bible by that verse. Obedience precedes blessing. Obedience precedes blessing. Our human tendency is we want to be blessed. And the obedience, that's sort of optional. Uh-uh, it doesn't work like that, does it? We obey, and then God says, now, my presence is going to be with you in a very special way, and I'm going to bless you. You know what I figured out? Life has a God-ordained purpose. Life has a God-ordained purpose. I think the restlessness, the despair, the unhappiness, that permeates world culture today, especially in the United States, is because we are trying to live life without God's purpose. We've established our own purposes. We've prioritized God right out of the picture. He is no longer the priority in most cases in people's lives. You know that. And so they miss their purpose. You and I have a God-given purpose. Now, let's not neglect it. Let's not let the house of God lie desolate. Don't get diverted and get your priorities all messed up if you want God's hand on your life. I preached in Ohio Wednesday night at a preacher's meeting. Thursday morning, I went to the airport there in Canton and Akron, and I sat down beside a guy on the plane. My signed seat was by a young man. And uh, after a few moments, we strapped our seat belts, and I began to talk to him. I said, what's your name? He said, Michael. And uh, what do you do, Michael? Well, I'm trained to be a microbiologist, but he held his hand out. I had an accident, and I fell and I messed up the nerves in my hand here. I was going to become a surgeon, and I can't move my hand. So my dad owns a machine shop, and he said, why don't you just come and take over because I'm near retirement. And so he said, I'm a microbiologist operating a machine shop. And I said, well, where are you from? I was born in Egypt, and um, my parents came because of persecution of Christians in Egypt about 25 years ago when I was a little boy. We moved here to Akron, and my dad started his business. I said, that's interesting. Where do you go to church, Michael? He said, I'm a Copt, the Coptic church, the ancient Coptic church. And so I said, well, Michael, let me ask you a question. I don't, by then, I told him I'm a pastor and who I was and background. Michael, let me ask you a question. Do you know the Lord? If you were to die, do you know you'd go to heaven? Are you, are you genuinely saved? 
You know, I was so shocked. It, I didn't expect it to come from him like it did. And he said it in different terms. And yet, I quizzed him, and, and I found out, my, I believe Michael really knew the Lord. And he was saved. And so we chatted for a while. And then he said, you know what? I'm glad I sat down by you. I'm glad we met today, Bill. And I said, I'm glad to meet you too, Michael. I just felt like when I get on a plane, I always pray and I ask the Lord to let me be seated by somebody. I can, I can help them. In fact, I was a little disappointed that you were saved. I wanna, I'm looking for lost people when I sit down on an airplane. I want to lead somebody to the Lord. And he said, no, I believe the Lord wanted us to sit here because I've been wandering away. And I haven't been going to church like I should. And he said, now, I used to read my Bible a lot, but I'm not reading it much now. And I said, well, Michael, let me help you. I said, do you really want some help? Yes, sir, I do. Well, let me give you a little two or three-point outline here, and I want you to just write it down. Number one, begin the day with the Bible in your lap and your knees bent at the throne of grace. Start off every day talk, talking to the Lord, reading His Word. And number two, you've got to get back in church. You can't live for the Lord. Your, 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 church, your, your life is never going to be higher spiritually than you're, than you're going and hearing the Word of God proclaimed and fellowshipping. And then get there and serve. You're not there to get. You're there not only to get. You're there to give. Go there and serve the Lord. And then I gave him some books and stuff to read. When I got off the plane, he said, I know why we're here. I was blessed. And I said, Michael, and I was blessed. You see, when you are available to do the Lord's work, he's going to bless you. He's going to use you. Now, there are two groups of people in this building right now. They're believers, and uh, consider your ways. Consider your ways. What about your priorities? What's the Holy Spirit said to you as I spoke this morning? And number two, they're unsaved people, and you can't claim God's promise that I'm going to be with you and bless you until while you reject His Son. And so I want to give you a chance to come and trust Christ as your Savior. He loves you. He died and shed his blood for your sins. Every single sin you've ever committed or ever will commit future was paid for at Calvary. It's already paid. The debt's paid. And God in his grace is not holding the past against you Grace says, you come on. You, don't, you may not deserve it, but you come on, and you come to the cross, and he'll save you today. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.